um, for all the ways in which you offer yourself are here to help us. I ask a special blessing on all that we're doing. Um, um, help us to give ourselves to this work to, in whatever degree we can with our schedules. <laughs> Newborn work, um, whatever they happen to be, these burdens. And um, help us to live those things that we learn, to make them living in our own lives, particularly where they show you, so that we can bring you, make you more present in everything that we do with others, particularly those close to us. We ask this in our Lord Christ. Amen. 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 <laughs> um, say your names again, please. Yeah. Ellen. Ellen. And Larry. Larry. Um, and, sorry. Barbara. Barbara, thanks. Sorry. My, my mind is going. It really is. Um, you're new, so let me just tell you what we've been doing very briefly. Um, the, the course is, is called um, Literature's Prophecy. And um, I, I'll re in some of the review that I'll offer tonight, you'll get some sense of what we've been doing, but you, you've missed everything we did, we've done on the um, Iliad and the Odyssey and, um, and the lyric poems that we do. We begin every class with a lyric poem, and all the, all the literature that we do, I've chosen in the hope that it would strengthen everything we do in our faith. Because the whole point of it is that, that if you read this closely, you'll see um, either prefigurings of Christ or images of him or foreshadowings of him. Um, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it, it's really clear if you read it closely that there are intimations of a, the parousia, the second coming, um, the return of the king, coming in judgment and glory. So that an, an amazing amount has happened. Um, I, everybody knows that all of this is online. Yeah, if you go into the um, St. Francis website and you go to the literature class, it'll give you an option to go into the lectures. So for anybody who's interested or if any of you have missed a talk and you want to go back and pick it up, you should be able to go back and, um, and get those. Um, they're there. But that's what we've been doing. Um, last week I did a, a, a sort of broad sweeping overview of, of the Homeric world, just to put it together before we go into Virgil, because Virgil is going to carry that world forward in what he does in, in to me, just amazing ways. And um, the whole course was directed towards the Divine Comedy. So as soon as we're done with Virgil in four weeks, we're in four weeks, we're going to start the Divine Comedy. And all of you who have taken the class, I think, will, will be able to see levels of meaning in the Divine Comedy. You'll certainly be able to see levels of meaning in Virgil you never would have been able to see if you hadn't read Homer. So there's a tradition being carried forward. And um, I wish, I mean, I've been saying all along, where are the young people? <laughs> and, then, and then Barbara brings in, what's her name? Eleanor. Eleanor. And then she brings in Eleanor. <laughs> what, five weeks old? Seven. Seven. I've always been criticized too much for having too great expectations for my students. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, that's what we've been doing. That's where we're going. Tonight we're starting Virgil. We actually I set some things up last week, but last week was mostly a pulling together of the whole Homeric world and setting out in outline form some things to look for in Virgil. So we've, everybody's been prepared a little bit. But tonight we're going to go into Virgil directly. I mean, we're going to start Virgil tonight, so. Um, a couple of things before I read the poems. Um, the first thing is next week, and our schedule has, has typically been, in Homer we did um, six books a week, because they're shorter. In Virgil, since there's only 12 books, we're doing three books each week. So we're doing books one through three this week, four, five, six the following week. The major book for next week will be book four. I can just, and book six. Book four, Aeneas is going to leave Dido after having an affair with her for a year. Um, and what Virgil does with Dido makes what Homer does with um, Circe and Calypso look almost childish. Um, it's, a, it's, it is one of the most touching human scenes of, of a romantic love between a man and a woman in all of our literature. And there are dimensions of meaning historically that are ex just extraordinary, just extraordinary. Because um, Virgil's going to show that part of the reasons for the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome have their origins in that relationship. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked about how important the sexual relationship was in Homer that in um, Circe and Calypso, um, Homer is looking at the archetypes of women and the, the attraction that they offer men and the temptations. I mean, we, we went through that pretty thoroughly. Here, those are all going to be present. I think we can say that Circe and Calypso will be in Dido, but um, in, a, in a far more deeply human way than anything we saw in Homer. It, it's going to be in some ways painful to watch. And, and um, disturbing and puzzling be because we see that, um, that what happens in the Punic Wars really has their cause here. So for anybody who has a sense of history, you know if you look at something like the Second World War or the First World War or, or our struggles with Islam today, say, we can't ever understand these things without going back centuries, truly. And, and if anybody proposes a solution to these problems without saying it's going to take centuries to answer them, I mean, they're just not, they're not looking at the world you know, with any kind of depth or reality, truthfulness. So book four is so important. And book six is Aeneas's journey into the underground. So it corresponds to Odysseus's journey into the underground. But in a similar way, Virgil departs so much, so radically from what Homer does. It's going to be a very different world. And one of the important questions I'm going to put to you guys next week is, when, when Odysseus goes into the underworld, it's a part of his adventures, right? It's one of them. Remember, he leaves Circe and then goes into the underworld and comes back and then goes on to Ithaca. In Virgil, the, the, the poem starts with Aeneas being thrown off course and coming to Carthage. He's with 
Dido for a year, it's during that time that he tells the story of his adventures, which will we get in book um, one, one, two, and three, two and three basically, and then he'll leave. And two things go on in this book that are radical changes from what he does, what Homer does. He goes by Circe's island afterwards, and he goes into the underworld. So neither Circe or the underworld are included in the adventures. So one of the major questions asked is, what is Virgil doing? Why did he do that? What's the difference? It's only one of the major changes that Virgil's making in what he does with this Homeric world. So next week, when you, um, when you're reading the book, um, I hope you'll enjoy the Dido episode. It's, it's, a, it's an emotionally intense book. And then, um, and then read closely the underworld because it's, it's very different from what we experienced in Homer. Um, and let me just say this because I've been thinking a lot about this um, before, I start, before I start a class. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about Virgil all of the, I haven't been in a classroom for ages, so um, doing this with you guys is bringing this all back to me in amazing ways, and I'm really great. I'm really grateful to you guys, truly, I am, genuinely, um, to have a chance to do this. I am. Um, I always felt something of a strange trying to make the case for Homer that there was something prophetic. You know, a couple of times I spoke to that because of my discomfort about it, even though I believe it. I don't think it's obvious. With Virgil, I don't think that's the case. I cannot read Virgil without seeing our church. It's like it's right off the horizon. Um, this is so close, so much closer to Christ, so much closer to our faith. Remember, it's going to Rome. The whole point of this is um, it's about the founding of Rome. So that this my contention is that this pagan is going to show us something about Rome that I'm assuming lots of Catholics don't have a clue about and hopefully strengthen our faith. Anyway, I'm amazed. I'm just amazed because um, I've already said this before, so I'm not giving anything away. I'm going to probably say it several times during our talk today. But um, if Rome means anything in this book, it means having to give up everything, absolutely everything. So one of the meanings of what this Rome is that we're going to come to at the end of the, at the, end of the book is costs less, nothing less than everything. Aeneas has to give up everything if he's to found the city. Now, how's that <laughs> for a description of our faith? We want a comfortable world here in America. We want all the things. We want the security of a job. We want everything to go with our family. And here's this guy who's lost everything. And there's some sense in which if we don't make a place for that, if if we were to go on to Rome, we don't understand what Rome is. So that's how serious it is. So I, um, um, the, the Homeric world is behind us. We're moving forward with Virgil. Um, I hope, my hope is that you saw amazing things in that Homeric world. My, my greater hope is that if you saw that, I hope you did, you're going to be even more amazed at what you get from Virgil because he takes that whole Homeric world and radically changes it. So, this is a great, great story. The two poems. Did, I read Aeneas at Washington, didn't I, last week? So I don't need to read that, okay? I, um, and I read um, Love Calls Us to Things of the World. 
I should have read this one, so I'm going to read this one tonight. This one is, um, I had it out last week and, and in the scramble lost it. Um, it was appropriate because we were coming out of um, Epiphany. This is T.S. Eliot. Um, I think I may have mentioned this last week. Um, when we get to the Divine Comedy, those of you um, who want to continue suffering through this and go ahead with this, um, I'm going for the, for the lyric poems that I read to begin the class, I'm going to read T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And they're not short, they're a little bit long. Because I think they're, they're, the Four Quartets is one of the most extraordinary poems of the 20th century. And, um, so we're going to do that when we do Dante. Here, this is T.S. Eliot writing Journey of the Magi. Eliot is probably the greatest poet of the 20th century. When he wrote um, Geoffrey Prufrock in the Wasteland, he turned the academic community and the artistic communities on their head because he was writing a kind of poetry that nobody had ever experienced before. So the whole liberal, intellectual, educated world um, looked towards him as this extraordinary person due to emerge, you know, after the Romantics and the Victorian age. And, but in the middle of his life, he, he underwent a conversion. He, he was raised Christian, but drifted from his faith, and in the middle of his life, he converted, I think Anglo-Catholic. And the academic world <coughs> lost its enchantment with his poetry. This is one of the poems that he wrote after the conversion. Ash Wednesday is, I may, I may read it, it's a, it's a really difficult poem. I may read it for when we get together, when we start Lent, but anyway, this is Journey of the Magi. This is Eliot's poem about the period that we just came through, the epiphany and the, and the trip of the Magi. And it's, it's interesting to see how he brings that, this, he's doing exactly what Virgil is doing. He's taking the past forward, carrying it forward so that it's part of our life. It, it's, it's recounted in our language. You can hear the colloquialisms that belong to our world, not the biblical world. And the images and scenes are all modern. So he's doing what Virgil did. He's taking that experience in and reenacting it here. Okay? T.S. Eliot, Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for the journey, and such a long journey. The way's deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sugar, and the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. 
Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wine skins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We have evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our palace places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Okay. Did everybody get all this? Can I turn this around? This is just, this is what I'm, we're going to do today. This is just a quick review. Last week, <coughs> I think you all know it's just a practice. I always review. I think it's good to hear things again, even if we've heard them, because uh, sometimes we hear them differently. And, so, and I always want to just sort of quickly pick up. So a very quick review. Um, even though we didn't start the Aeneid, um, I, I set out some of the major themes. Um, before I get to them, remember, here's what we talked about last week in that very broad review. From the beginning, I've made several claims about literature and said that I believe that some of the greatest literature is prophetic. And I said there's two kinds of prophecy. Um, one, which is um, compatible with the, with the prophetic tradition itself that we get in the Bible. One is that it, um, it's prophetic in the sense that it reveals us to ourselves. The great literature very, show, very often shows us things about ourselves that we do not want to see, that are too unpleasant, or obscure. The poets are those people who find images for that interior, obscure life, that inner life that we all have, that buried life, hidden life, um, and reveal it to us. Um, so that we have some way of learning about ourselves. Um, so in that sense, they're carrying the prophetic tradition out from scripture into our world. That was the first one. The second was that in some ways, they offer us images of Christ, whether in himself or, or um, in, in terms of a foreshadowing. The wind hover, remember, um, I don't know if we can get copies of these poems, but um, let me know at the end of the class, and if you want, I'll, I'll bring some of the poem, the lyric poems that we start with. Remember the, the wind hover, <clears throat> the image of Christ in the bird, kingfishers, um, supernatural love, Herbert's poems, the altar, the calling. All of those are images of Christ at work somewhere in nature. 
uh, that Hopkins would have found Christ in the Word? How many people see? How many people see God in creation? How many people see Christ? If He's the Word, He's there. I'm going to I'm going to make a stark statement. The reason we don't is because all of us are generally blind. The poets help us to break through that blindness, to see and to feel His presence. So we've seen that in lots of the poetry. And my argument as we move through Homer's world was these present there in subtle ways. I'm going to add one more thing to that, that one more prophetic quality that, that I sort of hinted at last week. Insofar, we, we, you won't be able to see this unless you move from Homer to Virgil. Because if you read Homer, you wouldn't see it. If you only read Virgil, you wouldn't see it. But one of the advantages of reading Homer and then Virgil is that you can see that what Virgil does that no other poet has done, except the really great ones, Dante will do it when we get to him, is that he carries the past forward and redeems it, changes it as he goes. Now I've said that a couple of times, but I'm going to add to that because it just, it just struck me. Um, I, I, think, I think it's safe to say, most people would say, the past is fixed, you can't change it, it's done, it's over. Hmm? Except for God, because for God there is no past, present, or future. There's always an eternal present. So God can do things with the past that we can't. But what Virgil did in treating his poem is that he showed that what was implicit in Homer, that all epics are about a founding, he treats them explicitly, that, that the whole the great theme of the Aeneid is the founding of Rome, creating this new city, this strange thing that won't be like any other city in the world. But to do that, he has to carry the past with him. But as he does, it's all changed. So the past isn't fixed. It's not static. It's changing. And I'm going to claim today that it's changed. And I'm, I will show this as we move. So if you'll just trust me on this, by the time we get through the book, you'll see that I'm not just um, blowing a hot air here, being too rhetorical, that he changes it in a spirit of love. He could not do what he did if he didn't have a greater love than Homer. And we're going to see that everywhere in Aeneas, who's the hero. So in that sense, I'm going to make this claim, <clears throat> that one of the things that the, that the great poet can do, like Virgil, and that Dante will do in the Divine Comedy, is that he will carry the past forward and redeem it as he goes. And in that sense, there's a, there's a prophetic element of forgiveness that becomes a part of our life because we experience the past being changed. If we take that into us and we live it, then hopefully we, we can participate more fully in that act ourselves. Now, I know that may seem outrageous, but let me put it out there. And, I'll ask you later if it holds up, okay? But that's one element of the prophetic qualities to literature that I want to add to what we've been talking about so far. It helps us to experience, to see that the past can be changed. The cost of it, I've already said it, nothing less than giving up everything, which is what Christ asks. So we're getting close, closer and closer to Christ. So that's the first, that literature is prophetic. The second claim I made is that along with um, Genesis and Exodus, the Iliad and the Odyssey are the founding works of Western civilization. They, 
They show this extraordinary dignity to the human person, Achilles and Odysseus. We've gone through that. The third was that we can't take language for granted, um, that it's, it's only through language that we experience these things. And in that sense, the, um, I argued that there is this, this strong connection between the words, the poetry, and the word that this prophetic element comes through words and it's not an accident. There's an analogy between what poets do with words and the word, Christ. He's there in everything we've been reading. The lyric poems, the epics, he, I'm going to argue, he'll be here. And we talked about that, the importance of, particularly in the Odyssey, remember how important words were. The, the, I've gone through this, right? This is all, because we did this last week, right? Um, um, what's my name, or what's your name, nobody's my name, that's what Odysseus says to the Cyclops, and when he blinds him, his friends come and say, who's hurting you by pain and treachery, and he says, nobody's hurting me by pain and treachery, and all the puns on the word of, of, of uh, Odysseus himself, which means cunning, so the word, when he says, nobody's hurting you by force of treachery, there's nobody there, and ironically, the, the word also means cunning, because cunning is undoing you and you know all those plays that Homer so Homer I argued was teaching us how to read because remember the fools never got home they're the ones who Napios the ones who can't read they don't see so um, it was essential that we it was one of the themes of the Odyssey is that it's essential for us to learn language because poetic language always brings together two points one close up and one at a distance so that we learn to see distances, levels of meaning in every point in reality. If God made the world, he's somehow present there. Can we see him? The poets reveal him. That was the argument. But that means we have to learn to read. Virgil's going to do that in spades. Because think about this. Somebody who's read the Aeneid, who hasn't read the Iliad and the Odyssey, is going to read a story, and they're going to miss a million ways in which Homer is everywhere present. Because Homer is embedded in that text. The, the current word would be inscribed. He's in, inworded. He's inscribed in everything that takes place. If you hadn't read Homer, what would you see? So when we look at the world and we have no sense of the past, what do we miss? How much are we missing in every present moment? Just by this blindness that I was describing a while ago. Yeah? So the poets are teaching us how to read. So this Taking language seriously is not a small thing. It's at the heart of what these poets are doing. It's one of the great themes of the works. It will be here. Um, so those were review, looking back. Here, here are the themes, the great themes of the Aeneid going forward. The central theme of the book is the founding of Rome. What is this Rome? Um, in the Odyssey, remember, this theme of cities was first introduced, Pylos, Sparta, Ithaca, and all the cities you know, that Odysseus had to learn. Um, all of those cities were conceived in terms of marriages, because that was the focus of getting home to his wife and son and his father. There's no wife. There is no father. Right? I mean, he loses them. If, you, if you're not there yet, he loses them. So. What Rome means is radically different from the city as Homer conceives it. 
So whatever this Rome is, we're not going to really understand it until I mean, we finish the book and put it all together. The theme of translation that, that Virgil knew that he couldn't do what he had to do unless he carried Homer with him. That's why in the backside I showed you, you all saw it, right? That the, that the Aeneid breaks down into two halves. But the first half is based on the Odyssey and the second half is based on the Iliad, right? So he's taken Homer, Homer's Odyssey fully into this part and the Iliad fully into this, but changed them radically. So Homer's taking the past forward, but transforming it as he goes. Now why and in what spirit? I mean, that's obviously one of the questions we have to ask ourselves and keep in mind as we're reading. What, what's the spirit of this poem? Um, that'll become clear in a, in a few minutes because I'm going to look at some of the changes. But we have to ask, is this just a Roman who's venting his prejudice against these Greeks the way an Italian would, an Irishman, you know, today in our world, or a black and white, an African-American and a white? Are, are they just taking up prejudice because they, he hates this Greek world? What's he doing? Um, how are we to understand this? Because if you've been reading closely, you know it's all changed. The, the people, at least that I came, I love, when I read the Iliad and the Odyssey, I, I look, at, I look at, at Achilles with admiration, and I look at Odysseus with admiration. I love those two men. I just, they're extraordinary. When we meet them here, they are horrible, despicable men. So what's he doing? This work of carrying the past forward. Um, is this a modern revisionist historian poet who's just reworking history to change it to fit his view? The theme of vocation. Aeneas is called out. He's told he has to found this city. Um, he has a divinely appointed task. God has called him. He knows that um, repeatedly. Um, he keeps acting on what he hears the gods telling him. And each time he does something, he learns that he got it wrong again and again and again. He has to keep picking himself up. How often that's true for us, I'm assuming. We think we've got everything where we want it and suddenly a rug's pulled out and we fall, find ourselves flat on our face. And suddenly you fall on your face on a stone. The <laughs> whole right. side of your face is gone. <laughs> I've been there. I know. All of us have. This theme of a calling that um, he's trying to be to give his will to the gods completely. The only time he does it is this year with Dido, which is a real lapse for him. But outside of that, he really struggles to give his will. And he keeps finding himself failing. You know, again, it isn't until he gets to the underworld, that things will, the, the afterlife, that things will get very, very definite. And from that point on, Aeneas, I think, will be a different person. The tradition, the poetic tradition, um, I, I don't want to go into this because I, I want to get to other things that to me are more important, but the things like the poetic modes, the invocation, Homer's similes, I've talked a little bit about this. Homer's epics are what we would call primary epics. They grow out of an oral tradition. Virgil's epics are secondary. They're literary. He, he's working off an established tradition. So Virgil's epic is far more literary, far more aesthetic, his use of similes are far more varied. All of Homer's similes are, are rooted in nature. 
He keeps liking everything into nature, waterfowls, animals, you know. Virgil similes are everywhere, and lots of them are from art, constructs of art, because art has become far more important. Juno's wound, um, the gods that are making, the god that's making things so difficult for Aeneas is Juno. She's upset because um, um, she's wanted Carthage to, um, to be the greatest city in the world, and she knows that it's going to be destroyed and that Aeneas is going to go on and found Troy. So no. she's doing everything no. she can to prevent him. And she's carrying on the old wounds from the past against the Trojans, because remember Paris chose Aphrodite over her and Athena. Mm -hmm. So there's this, the, the wound of a woman who will not let go of an old injury. So this old injury rankles and she's carrying it forward. So the feminine, the view of the feminine, this is once again important the way it was for um, Homer's world. And today I'm adding this one, the dying cities, because it's, it's, it's the basis of the, it's the subject of the third book, and I want to look at that just briefly today. All of these cities, wh um, what do we learn about Rome from looking at these other cities? What do they lack that Rome is going to bring into existence? What is, what is Virgil showing us? So those are, those are the major themes. I want to look at two of them today, the dying cities, and I want to look at this thing of translation. But I want to look at specifically four areas in this work of carrying the past forward. The first one is Virgil's critique of the Greek world. When we left Homer, Achilles was this extraordinary figure who was, I'm going to say, standing above his world. Nobody could conquer him. We didn't see the destruction of Troy, but we saw this great conquest that there wasn't anything he couldn't overcome. And Odysseus, who overcame all these things to, to recover something he'd lost with his wife and go on to something new. You know, the, the, because of all that he'd learned that he could bring home to his wife at the end of the story. So both of these heroes are images of something, this great dignity that human beings are capable of, that, that Homer showed us. But all of it's going to come under attack. Virgil's going to see that there's something wrong with it. So we have to change perspectives now. This, this great, these great heroes that, if any of us got attached to them, um, we're going to have to struggle with that because Virgil's picture of them is radically different. The changes in the Greek heroes, a part of it. His critique of Troy, what was it? What's, what's wrong? Why, why did Troy fall? He, he makes that clear. And finally, the importance of origins, um, the causes of things, and the way they go back. Homer took us back to Paris's choice and the um, earlier you know, generations earlier when there were these Laomedon's betrayal and things like that that we briefly touched on. Um, Virgil's going to do the same thing, but given a different cast. So, um, um, I want to look at those. Okay. Um, I want, before we do anything, I want to make a, a brief summary of the first three books. And then I want to... Um, um, I want to um, 
just quickly read through some passages to get us all grounded in the text. And then I want to come back to these two things, the dying cities and um, Virgil's critique as he moves forward. So this is the, this is just a brief summary. I don't, um, um, I know some of you struggle with the reading, um, and, but I know some of you have a hard time with it, so I just want to take a, a couple of minutes to summarize what goes on. The Aeneid opens with an invocation, just like the two Homeric epics. He's invoking the help of the god to describe the story about this fugitive. Um, he's running from something. He's lost his home. And the gods are making problems for him. At least one god is. Um, so, Aeneas is bound for Italy. Juno, who bears a grudge against him, calls on Aeolus to stir up the winds. Remember, Aeolus stirs the winds up. He gets thrown off course, and he has to land at Carthage in northern Africa. Um, he is enclosed in a myth by Venus, his mother, to protect him. And when he sees it safe, he comes out of the mist and um, comes to Dido, and there's this uh, meeting between this great prince that she's aware of because she knows the story of the Trojan War, and this great queen who's founding this great city. And there's, if, if you read it closely, there's, clearly there's this sense of relief for Aeneas to be at a place where buildings are going up. Because you know he's already failed again and again and again and again to settle a home. So here are all these temptations. These buildings are going up. Um, he makes a, a line. There's a line to that effect. Um, Venus, his mother, is aware of the danger that he faces in Dido. So she, um, she pretends to take on the person of his son, Ascanius, and seduces her temp. Yeah, she makes Dido fall in love with him as a way, she says, of protecting her son. Um, and Dido is enamored of the boy, and that enamor gets turned towards Aeneas. She becomes passionately involved with him. That night, um, she welcomes him into a banquet, and Aeneas is asked to sit down and tell the story. And it's at that point that we get the stories of the, the destruction of Troy and um, his voyages. Um, and, and let me wait on that, because that, that's basically what happens in the first three books. But I want to give an overview, a very quick overview, to put this in perspective. Um, and then I want to just quickly read through some passages before I look at these two things. I want to put this in the context of the whole book, because I, as I've said before, I think it's really important that we read for holes. And the first time you read something, you can't do that. You're always reading in parts. You don't know where you're going, you know what the end is. So there's a lot you don't see. So I'm offering this as just a very quick overview of the whole, what's behind it. And then hopefully this will serve for a while. Um, keeping in mind that everything Virgil does is changing Homer. Virgil begins his epic with Aeneas telling the story of the fall of Troy. We never get it in Homer, right? We never see it, not even from Odysseus. Think about that. That whole event, all the havoc, the destruction, the rapes, let me put it as the violence, the mutilations, the rapes, 
Everything that's ugly about a war, all of that's left out. So we have in place of it are these great heroes and what they're doing. Okay? Virgil doesn't spare us that. So it's from him that we get the, the, the description of the destruction of Troy. Everything that's horrible to look at. Um, and, and let me try to put it even more baldly. You can't, you already know, you can't read the Iliad page after page without description of somebody getting killed. You know? But you, I, I'm going to say, you get used to it. Killing, kill. But we never see a whole city destroyed. We watch isolated battles between men, but we never see a mass destruction. So on, on a scale, just in terms of mass, what happens in the Aeneid is far greater than anything we see in, in terms of violence in the Iliad. Okay? So it's only in Virgil that we get the story, the, a description of how awful it is. It begins with Aeneas telling us the story of the fall of Troy. We never get it in Homer. But more importantly, he tells the story with a noticeable shift in perspective. In the Iliad, we experience the deaths of men on both sides, but the governing perspective is a kind. This slant is taken in order to hold up for our admiration the ideal of a hero as the Greeks conceived him. In the Iliad and Odyssey, Achilles and Odysseus stand over their worlds, imaging. The very best humans are capable of in defense of their homelands and marriages. They're fighting for a good cause. They're good men. Paris was a scoundrel. I mean, he's the one. He wouldn't even give Paris or I mean, Helen up when he could have put a war to the end. The war, the, he could have brought the war to an end. He didn't. Achilles and Odysseus are fighting for something good. Everything has changed in the Aeneid. There we experience the destruction of a city, not in terms of what it cost the victors, but in terms of what it cost the conquered. The story is told from a Trojan perspective, not a Greek one, and for the first time we are allowed to experience not what it feels like to triumph over another people, but what it feels like to lose a homeland. Those in your family you love, a way of life, <coughs> all the traditions and rituals that tie you to the land, its seasons, its nature, the gods, all the minute of one's existence. For the first time since we put down Homer, we begin to have some sense of what it means to take things for granted because we lose them all. It's like losing a spouse or a family member or a child or um, suddenly they're not there. You know, and, the thing, and then we feel, I think, I would assume most of us, knows what it means to take things for granted because there's so much a part of our life that Virgil spares none of that. It's all laid out. There's nothing he doesn't show us. The whole city is destroyed, the whole way of life. Um, we begin to have some sense of what it means to take things for granted, all that they mean to us without knowing it because there's no way we can fully appreciate them until we've lost them. This is the larger context in which Virgil renders a number of painful losses surprising and sometimes painful discoveries all the way along. That's all we're going to experience. Virgil is called Melancholy Virgil. Homer doesn't have a tag like that. And there's no better word. And by the way, to just make, not a, not a book will take place without a loss, an important loss. Every book has as its center some major loss. So, Virgil has this sense of suffering for what one loves um, that goes to a depth I don't think we ever find in Homer. Now, what does this all 
have to do with Rome? How is it pointing towards Rome? What is the showiness about Rome and our faith? Um, the reading a couple of days ago, for those of you who were here for the weekend mass, was from Isaiah, where he talks about he was chosen to speak for the Lord, to call people to justice, to flatten the Romans, not, not, how do you, not, a, not a wick he would put out, nothing would he hurt um, the oppressed, free the prisoners. That was from Isaiah. And then Christ quotes him in, in the temple when he's speaking, and he says, this day in your hearing, those words have been fulfilled. He was quoting Isaiah, free the prisoners, take care of the poor. Um, not a broken reed when he injured. That was something like that in Isaiah's words. So, Virgil's going that way. So to give up everything to the move in the direction of something greater, and he has not a clue at this point what it is. So we are in a completely different world, completely different world at this time. So that's the larger context in which I'd like to put this. Now what I'd like to do is just briefly read through some scenes because, and touch on them. I just, because I, um, um, some of these you will, you'd probably pass over and not give a thought, but I, I just want to um, touch on them so you can get some sense of some of the things that Virgil's doing with Homer. It begins with invocation, page, the very first page. I sing of warfare and a man at war from the sea coast of Troy in early days. He came to Italy by destiny to our Lavinian western shore, a fugitive, this captain, buffeted cruelly. Juno is after him. Cruel losses were his lot in war till he could found a city and bring home. So two themes immediately. He's a fugitive in flight. Somebody's after him. But it's nothing like what happens in the Odyssey in Homer. He's to found a city. Odysseus was trying to get home, right? There's already a city there. Aeneas is going on to something he has not a clue about. To found a home, a city. And um, Juno's anger and the reason for it, um, towards the bottom of page one, can anger black as this prey on the minds of heaven? In Juno, we are told, care more for Carthage than for any city on earth, going over, page four. And chariot were kept and fate permitting, Carthage would be the ruler of the world, so she intended, and so nursed that power. But she had long heard since about the founding of Troy, so her anger is increased. She's, it's rankled in her. Um, she, she gets, um, she gets the um, Aeolus to stir up these storms, you know. I'm just going to go through briefly because I just want to touch on some, um, page six, at the bottom of the page. Aeneas looks like He's standing, he's in a situation in which he thinks he's going to be swamped by the ships and they're all going to die at sea. Does that re remind you of anything? What? In the Odyssey. Um, well, weren't there a couple of times when they, used, they were washed up? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the one, I mean, yes, in the Odyssey several times. 
the, the one in particular I'm thinking, but Odysseus says the same thing. The idea that Odysseus would be swamped at sea is so galling to him. Oh, yeah. And Achilles, when he was at the river Xanthus at the end in the middle of that psychomachia, when all the gods come in, he says, I would have rather died at Diomedes' sword than die here in the river. So here's this old, this old Kleos, and hold on to that because it's this, it's this old world still with him. Here's the warrior, a man of honor, to die at sea. Triple lucky, all you men to whom death came before your father's eyes, below the wall at Troy, bravest Dane and Diomedes, why could I not go down when you had wounded me? Isn't that that old world? It's that same pride. So whatever Aeneas is going to become, at this point we see there's something of that old man in him. He's still under that honor code. On page 10, is Pan they land. They don't know where they are. Um, once again, they've, they're not doing what they think they should be doing, and they're not sure. Notice what he says, middle of the page. Friends and companions, have we not known hard hours before this? My men who have endured still greater dangers, God will grant us an end. Go down, now call back your courage and have done with fear and sorrow. Someday, perhaps, remember even this will be a pleasure. Go down, be patient, save yourselves for more auspicious days. So ran the speech, burdened and sick at heart. He feigned hope in his look and inwardly contained his anguish. I can't remember anything in the Odyssey or the Aeneid. I don't remember Achilles once hiding his feelings. This is Aeneas pushing back his own feelings in order to encourage his men because it's one more hopeless situation. Um, on page 12, 13, and 14, we, we get Juno presenting this long prophecy of of the historical events that will take place that will lead to the founding of Rome. And remember, Virgil would have known this because that history had already taken place. But it's his way of assuring Juno that this will happen, that Rome will be founded, Aeneas will be saved. Um, going over to page 19. Um, Yeah, here's this line, middle of 19, how fortunate these are whose city walls are rising here and now. You can imagine the relief, just the, <clears throat> some sense of respite, you know, some rest from his labors. Um, he looked up at the roofs, for he had entered swathed in cloud. Um, a grove that cast sweet shade where the Phoenician, shaken by wind and sea, had dug up that symbol Juno, Juno showed him a proud war horse's head. This meant for Carthage, prowess in war. So, here is, this is Carthage's image. Remember this war horse, because we're going to talk about the dying cities. It's a war horse. This is Carthage. What Virgil is going to make us aware of is that every city has a soul, a soul, a spirit to itself, peculiar. And you can find an icon, an image that will represent it. The image of Carthage is this war horse. Does anybody know what the image of Rome is? You probably, it, it doesn't happen until book seven, I think, when, when Aeneas gets to Italy and he has that, huh? Was it a No. It's in book seven when he, He's next to the river Tiber, and the, the river god Tiburnus comes to him and gives a prophecy and says, look for this. 
Oh, look. Bless you, bless you. Thanks. You sure you're warm? Yeah. I'm just cold <laughs> looking at you. God. Um, it's a, this is, I mean, think about the difference between this. It's a cow and 30 sows. How ugly and ordinary. Why? Because it's not this noble city for only the great. Rome is for everybody. So think about, I mean, just here, this difference. The image defining Carthage is this spirited war horse, noble, soldier-like. The image defining Rome will be a sow, this mother pig and her 30 piglets, nursing, nursing, feminine, very masculine. Rome is very feminine. Um, he, he comes, page 20, he comes to, I'm going to put a question to you guys. Um, he comes to Juno's temple, right? Um, um, Dido has, has built this temple to Juno, and on the friezes of it, the panel, are, is the story of the Roman, the Trojan Roar unfolded. And, there, and he cries, he weeps to see it. Now line this up with Homer. Odysseus sits down in the middle of the Phaeacian community and he tells the story of his adventures. We talked about how important that was for going home. He could not get home until he learned to see himself more truly. So the storytelling is an act of self-reflection, self-knowledge, that he has to see himself and learn. So, um, so Odysseus sits in the middle of this community, tells the story, and you know that they'll take him home. He finally gets home. There's nothing like this in the Aeneid except this moment when Aeneas is standing before Juno's temple and sees the story of Troy and weeps. Now what's the difference? Weeping. weeping is one for sure. Right? He's so moved by it. But he sees the loss of his city. He sees the loss of his past. Yeah. All of that, and 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 what seems to me one more thing. How far away? How many in time? How far away is he from the destruction of Troy? At this point, do you remember? It's almost been seven years since Troy was destroyed. Here's the Aeneid. Here's the Aeneid starting right here, right? The just well, actually, we went over this last time. Where does the Aeneid start? with the destruction of Troy, except we know that it started here, right off the coast, coast of Carthage. And what just happened before that? <coughs> at tri I spelled it Trey. Trey. Give me a, help say that. D-R-E. Your E. P-A-R-U-M, I guess. Trepernum. It's on the dying cities. Trepernum. Trepernum, yeah, Trepernum. He just lost his father, right? The Aeneid opens when he has just lost his dad. I think we touched on that last. So the Aeneid opens with the loss of his father, and in some ways the father's more important because he's the one who carries the line. Does anything like that happen in the Odyssey? Absolutely not. Aeneas' father's at home. He's going to him. Odysseus. Or Odysseus, sorry. So he's just lost his father. That's the atmosphere he's under. He's been at sea for seven years, 
right, on his voyages, he's going to describe them here, right? Ask, the, ask this question or answer it. What's your thought on this? This man has been told to go found a city. He has no clue where it is. He's been searching for six years. What's the difference between him at this point and Odysseus sitting down in the middle of the Phaeacian audience? Is that clear? Is that clear? If it isn't, she'll tell me. <laughs> what do you say, Doc? It's very clear, but we don't know the answer. <laughs> I said sure. Odysseus knows where he's going. Sorry? Odysseus knows where he's going, yeah. even if he hasn't gotten there yet. Yeah. Let me put it even more starkly. How much self-knowledge does he have at this point? Does he know himself? Aeneas? Yeah. This is a completely different kind of hero. He's looking at this. This is the man he once was. Is he, or put it to, is this the same man he was seven years earlier? No. This was a Trojan. His life was settled. He had everything the way, everything was going the way he wanted as far as he knew. He'd lived there forever. He'd raised that way. All the traditions were behind him. Now he's looking at this, this mural. He's weeping because of the loss. But as a man, comparing with Odysseus, in terms of self-knowledge, what does he know about himself? Where is he going? What, I mean, this is a man who's lost everything. If, if any of us were in that situation, just imagine each one of you for yourself. Lose your family for a minute. They're all gone. Move down the road five years when you're searching. And you still know, who are you? I mean, won't you come to a point where you look in a mirror and say, I mean, it's like Hamlet, who am I? So the, the figure that we're looking at here is completely, couldn't be more different from Odysseus. Well, one is looking at what happened as a winner, and one right. is looking at they lost. Everything lost, yeah. yeah. So there's a big difference yes. when you look back at something. Yes. And add to that that he doesn't have any idea where he's going, what this destiny is That's yet. Right. So. So what I'm suggesting is this is a completely different kind of hero. We're in a very different world. Would anybody know this who hadn't read the Iliad or Odyssey? Not a clue. I think about education. I mean, it makes me so upset. So upset. So upset. I don't want to get started. No, don't. <laughs> I do the class will be over. Um, okay, he, he, he goes on to describe the cities, his journey, and I'm just, I want to just bring it to an end and then I want to look at these particular things. <coughs> at the end of his, is he sitting there in Carthage in this ornate, wealthy, elaborate, highly feminine power, <coughs> but surrounded by jewelry and mirrors and he's telling the story, this is in me, it's looking for rest and um, he tells the story of having failed in all of these attempts to found the city, and then he comes to the end of it, to what just happened before the storm brought him to Carthage. Page 90 and 91. Bottom of page 90. Um, by winds I put Salinas of the Psalm palms behind us to sail closer to the shoal water of Lilybaean with her hidden reefs, and in the end the port of Trepanum took me in a landing without joy. For after storms at sea had buffeted me, so often here, alas, I lost my father. 
solace in all affliction and mischance, O best of fathers, in my weariness, though you had been delivered from so many perils in vain, alas, here you forsook me. Never had Helenus the seer, who warned of many things to make me quail, or told this grief to me, nor had the vile Selena. That's the fury. Those are two of the figures he meets in his wanderings who will prophesize what's going to happen. So that brings us to the end of three, book three, which is, I know where you all are, right? Um, now let me stop. Um, what I'd like to do is take a look briefly at the dying cities, and then I want to look at Homer's critique of the Greek world with a few examples. But let me stop for a minute. You guys have any, I, I feel like I've just been going too fast and rushing too much. And, yeah, good. So it took him seven years to get to Carthage. And when he gets there, here's this whole story of Troy falling in a mural. So who did that? And how did they do it so fast? I don't know. I can't answer the question. I think what... Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. But I, I, I mean, to me it's not inconceivable. To me... I think what the point of it all is that this was, you, we, you know, you came out of that Homeric world. Mm -hmm. That world defined the ancient world. That, that episode, that event defined. If you look at all the Aeschylus, Sophocles, if you look at the great tragedians, all the great poets, they all carried that war behind them. It defined a way of life as they looked to Sparta and Greece and, you know, dealing with people. So there wasn't anybody in the, in the near world. Because people, remember, people came from the east to join with Troy. Africans and Asians, um, and Greece was this small democracy, or no, budding democracy. And so there wasn't anybody who didn't know it. That's the destruction of a city, a whole way, a, you can call it a civilization in our terms. It was a way of life for a whole people. So there wouldn't have been anybody who didn't know about it, and it, so it, wouldn't, it would be as unlikely for somebody to present that story as it would have been for Holocaust victims not to put memorials up or and they would, have, they would have gone to work on it right away. Um, Dida's been there for a time. The men have been working. And so they, they would have gone to work to show that story immediately. It defined their temple. Of, the gods were there. It was a religious way of life. So, You know, I think what's kind of ironic is that you said it was in Juno's palace. And Juno was the one that was against the Trojans. And so I think it's interesting that you would have Juno, you would have this whole epic of the Trojan War actually depicted in Juno's palace. Well, Juno hated the Trojans. I was going to say. Right, right. But so, so, so the question is, you know, what exactly did the picture show? But I mean, I just think it's interesting that here Juno's taking credit for, I mean, the destruction of Troy, but there was much more to that. Right, right. Yeah, and there, and there are ironies because, I mean, in a sense, I mean, we've got to come to what happens to Juno later to quiet her, you know, to right. appease her. But here, at least, it's a celebra it's an affirmation of what she wanted, because Troy was destroyed and she hated the Trojans, so. Yeah. Do not do that, please. One of the things that I find really interesting is that you know, Troy really needed to, they deserved to lose. Why do you say that? 
Well, they, I mean, the Greeks were so much smarter than them. They, they got that horse out. They had all those clues about, don't take this horse in there. And they went ahead and they did it. Thank and you. the Greeks were hiding a little way away and got and there in time. Remember, I the mean, Greeks were more organized and, and you all can the time. See why Rome, after it became the great empire, they really didn't like the Greeks that much. They respected them and built on them, but there was always that grudge there. But yeah. the Greeks were smarter. Yeah. But I, I want to just add uh, yes to all. I mean, in some ways, you're already, I mean, you've taken away the, you, you need what I've need to do in the next few minutes. It's futile, pointless. But they also admired them greatly. Well, yes, they greatly. did, too. I all mean, they them. adopted all of their gods yes. and goddesses. They gave them different names, but... Well, not only that, but the art and history, and I mean, yeah. if you read Cicero or the, any, of the, any of the great leaders, they loved the Greeks. They, had, they, right. they, they couldn't help but admire them because what they did was so great, sure so great. Uh, let's, here, I want to, so let's go there. Or maybe we don't, maybe it's all done. <laughs> go, to, go to page 36, go to page 3640. Let's quick, because. 3640? 36 to 40. So, this whole theme of translation, of Virgil taking the past forward, we had these two great heroes, Achilles and Odysseus, standing over their world, these two great noble figures. And this is, this is what we get. What did I say? 36. So the Greeks wake up one morning and there's this horse outside the gates. And they don't know what's going on. And they come across this man named Sinon, um, who, who um, tells them the story that he had been pers Who persecuted him? <laughs> the Greeks. Ulysses. Uh, Ulysses. Ulysses. Single Ulysses. And let's, so let's get that name in. It's Ulysses now, okay? Yeah. Um, page 36, down towards the bottom. In royal councils we did well with honor. Then by the guile and envy of Ulysses, nothing unheard of there. You hear the scorn and contempt? Mm -hmm. he, he says over in the next page, many times the Danans wished to organize retreat to leave Troy. Um, Ulysses is one of the major figures who persuaded them not to do that. Go down below, page 37. When this got around among the soldiers, gloom came over them because they wanted to retreat, but Ulysses kept persuading them not to. Um, who had death in store? Whom did Apollo call for? Now the man of Ithaca, who's that? Man of Ithaca? Odysseus. Hailed Calchas are are among us in tumult, out among us in tumult, calling on the seer to tell the true will of the gods. Top of 38. Who is Calchas? Remember, he was the bird watcher in the Iliad. He was the one at the beginning who, who, who told why the plagues had come. For 10 days, the seer kept still, kept undercover, would not speak of anyone or name a man for death till driven to it at last by Ulysses' cries, by prearrangement. So this is a scheme worked out between the religious seer and Ulysses. A religious seer is supposed to speak religious truths, right? So he's using, it would be like today, getting a priest to, to carry out something that is in violation of his own vows. So, um, um, go down. 
At the bottom of 38, whoever you may be, the Greeks are gone. Forget them from now and you shall be ours. And answer me these questions. Who put this huge thing up? What do they want? Goes on. Top of 39, eternal fires of heaven he began. Powers inviolable. I swear by thee and by the altars and blaspheming swords I got away from and the gods' white bands I wore as one chosen for sacrifice. This is justice. I'm justified. He is swearing to the gods. How did the Greeks destroy Troy? by an act of blasphemy. It's not just cunning, it's blasphemy. He's swearing by the gods that what he's telling is true. Um, go down in the middle of 39. In help from Pallas then the night came when Diomedes and the criminal Ulysses dared to raid her holy shrine. They killed the guards and they stole a, a Athena statue and the whole story is here is in retribution, they had to make a sacrifice to atone for that act. So they create this horse. So they're telling these lies about violations of the gods and um, making atonement for their wrongs. So um, one more, I think we already, where is, um, and do you remember the description of um, Aeneas, or I mean Achilles in here? Where was it? He's described as doing what he did for gold when they talk about, sorry, I've lost it. It's in the same, when, when he describes the, uh, the uh, ransom for Priam, mm -hmm. he said he was doing it for gold. Is that, is that the way Homer describes Achilles at the end of that? No. So, the, the first image we get of Achilles is that he's doing nothing he, except, nothing he does except out of greed, and there's nothing that Odysseus doesn't do except out of cunning and, in some sense, blasphemy. So what's his critique of the, good, the Greek world? It's Machiavellian. It uses the gods for its own ends. It's tr it, you cannot trust them. They're treacherous. They've done all these things. They, they make these vows to the gods. The sorts of things that the Trojans should trust, and they do, to their undoing. It goes on and on like this. I'm gonna, I just want to stop. Um, um, quickly turn, oh, Achilles 21, page 21. It's on 21. Oh, here, top of 21. There was Hector dragged round Troy's walls three times, and there for gold Achilles sold him, bloodless and lifeless. Is that how Homer presented him? At this point, it seems to me, if you've read the Iliad, you've got to say, I really like Homer, and I hate Virgil because he's just a prejudiced bigot. <laughs> or you say, or if you've got some nerve to say, what is this guy doing? Because this is so different from, now take a look, we'll end on this, take a look quickly at um, book seven, um, line 733, page 179. I wish we had time to go through the destruction toward, but we don't. I've made a commitment. I'm going to try to get out on time because I'm always late, badly late, and it's a real sin. Um, but I want to try to get out. This is when Aeneas is in the underworld and he meets um, um, Diphobus. Um, See if I can find this. 178. 
Night comes on Aeneas, we use up hours grieving, here's the place where the road forks, for the right hand it goes past mighty Deesa's walls, Galicium's way, our way, but the leftward road will punish malefactors taking them to Tartus. This is one of the finest differentiations we get in literature of the differences between the afterlife. Homer's hell underworld doesn't have this kind of differentiation. It's not as clear. This is far more complex, far more differentiated. Tartarus is hell. Elysium is the field of the blessed. Um, Diphobus answered her, no need for anger, reverend lady. I'll depart and make the tally in the darkness full again. Go on, sir, glory of us all. This is Diphobus in the afterlife recognizing something special about Aeneas. Glory, glory of us all. Who's and it's Diphobus? one of the tags that goes has, goes. Who's Diphobus? Yes. Who? Who, sorry. Who is Diphobus? He's, he's the man that helped, he's coming, it'll be, it'll, you'll see. He spoke, and even as he spoke, he turned away. Now of a sudden, Aeneas looked and saw to the left under a cliff. Some of you guys are really, keep getting ahead of me here. You, that's, I mean, good. I'm really glad that you already, um, keep me honest here. To the left under a cliff, wide buildings girded a temple, go down. High in the air, an iron tower stood on which the Siphony, her bloody robe, pulled up about her. The Sibyl says below, light of the Teucrians, it's decreed that no pure soul may cross the still of evil. Um, this is, we're about ready to leave. But she says, are we okay? We've got 10 minutes. Okay, yeah. Um, over on page, um, 177, He's approaching this area in the underworld. Um, not so Agamemnon's phalanx, he goes on. Some, this is the top of 177. Some turned and ran. That is, once Aeneas comes, the Greeks flee because they're terrified of him after having been defeated. And some turned and ran as once when routed to the ships while others raised a battle shout or tried to. Mouths agape, mocked by the whispering cry. Here next he saw Diphobus, Priam's son, now here's what's important. Mutilated from head to foot, his face and both hands cruelly torn, ears shorn away, nose to the nose holes locked by a shameful stroke. Barely knowing the shade who quailed before him, covering up his tortured face, Aeneas spoke out to him. Diphobos is the man who married Helen after Hector was killed. If you remember it, if you were, huh? I'm sorry, um, yes, Helen, wait, yes, sorry, Helen, sorry, Hector, not, Priam's, sorry, I mean Paris, sorry, I'm trying to, Diphobus is the one who married Helen after Paris. Um, was killed. Um, in, in the second book, when they're describing the, the destruction of Troy, Aeneas is running through the city and he goes to Diphobus' house and can't find him. So now he finally, and it was important that he, he was a man looked up to, a good man. Yeah. Now he finds him in hell, mutilated. 
completely, you just saw, saw the description. Gallant officer in Hytuker's line who chose this brutal punishment, who had so much. He said, who could have done this? And Priam's son replied, you left undone nothing, my friend, but gave all ritual due diphobus. He couldn't bury him because he couldn't find him. Do a dead man shade. My lot and the Laconian woman's ghastly doing sank me in this hell. Laconia is Sparta. Sparta. Who's the woman? Oh. Helen. We're, we're done. It's 8.20. Yeah. Um, in the fourth or fifth book of the Iliad, or third book, it's when the two armies hold that peace briefly. Mm -hmm. If you remember, Helen goes up to the ramparts of the wall and she looks out on the field and she describes all these great Greek heroes. Mm -hmm. And the description of the Iliad, who would not fight for this woman? Songs will be sung of her forever. So here's Virgil now. The, the reason for the fall of Troy was not heroism, not courage, bravery. It was treachery and blasphemy. The images of Achilles are a man who's greedy, who does what he does for gold. And the images of Odysseus are a man of cunning, cheating, lying. So let me stop for one moment and just, what's Virgil doing? And what's the, what's the corollary of this? If this is the critique of the Greek world, what's his critique of the Trojans implicitly? I don't think so. I think they were honorable men. I think they were too gullible, too credulous. As a matter of fact, he's going to say in hell, in this close to this, he's going to say, forgive our pride. Don't hold that pride against me as I go on to found this. So one of the critiques we get from Aeneas of the Greek world is that they're treacherous people not to be trusted. They're too cunning. They're Machiavellian. They use things for themselves. And one of his critiques of the Trojans is they were too, too credulous, too sentimental in their pieties. Their yeah. pieties were not firm enough. Um, so they were easily tricked. So if, if, if he's going to go forward, if Rome is going to be something, what will it be if he's got to learn from these things? Just in terms of these basic critiques here. The, the weaknesses of Rome, or I mean of Troy, if they're going to learn from them, and what not to do that the Greeks did. Imagine the heroism that it would take to overcome those things, whatever that's going to be in Rome. Sorry to press this, but um, at least I covered it. So this, this is the beginning. This is the start. Remember what I said earlier? Read, give close attention to book four, because book four is an extraordinary book, and book six in the underworld. And we'll focus on those next week when we meet, okay? You guys have a good week. Especially you, Mom. Barbara. Especially you. Yeah. And then,